Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And this is our third and final episode on the saga of Hor than the Home Dwellers. We are telling the story of a group of highly organized but not overly intelligent outlaws living in Iceland on the cusp of the conversion of the island to Christianity. Yeah, the uh, the old conversion. I keep waiting mm-hmm. for that to happen. What, the conversion? Yeah, no, It's it's been promised several times already in this saga, specifically around the future of Thorbjörg, and oh, yeah. I feel like in this episode we're due for a good conversion. Well, no one enjoys a good conversion story more than we do, Andy, but I'm afraid this saga is going to stay on the cusp of conversion. Oh. The story really isn't going to get us there. That's disappointing. Or, I, I mean, I guess it's not disappointing if you're not into conversion narratives, but what kind of animal <laughs> would you be? I mean, it, right. It, it, it does end with a Christian prayer, if that helps. I guess that helps a little. Uh, hang on, here it is. Uh, God give us all good days without end. Amen. And so it goes. Well, uh-huh. that's very nice. Well, I hope that cheered you up because the rest of this episode is going to be a lot darker. We're, uh, we're picking the story up at kind of a crossroads for our scrappy group of antagonist protagonists. And their yes. future is not looking particularly bright. Yeah. Uh, you had somewhere between two and four metaphors going on that last statement. You want to clean it, <laughs> clean it up a <laughs> hey, little bit? I'm large enough to contain contradictions. Uh, oh, okay. But before we look into the crystal ball and read the tea leaves, we need to <laughs> look for the breadcrumbs of our footsteps in the sand. Oh, God, you're the worst, John. Time to fire up the Wayback Machine and find out what happened. Last time on The Saga of Horv and the Home Dwellers. Horv and his friends, Helgi, Gear, and Sigurd, fresh off their success raiding the tomb of Sotty the Viking, engaged in a bit of rough play, setting out to raid all about the North Sea. Sigurd, separated from the others, barely survived a brouhaha with another fleet of Viking ships. Later, Geir runs afoul of Queen Gunnild in Norway and escapes her wrath by the skin of his teeth. And meanwhile, in Iceland, Hor's sister, Thorbjörg, is married to Indridi, a local up-and-comer. Rumor has it that Geir had his cap set for young Thorbjörg himself, but their love was not to be. Back at the family farm, Hor's estranged father, Grimgel, has a troubling tete-a-tete with his household guards, who warn Grimgel that his son's life is to be luckless and tragic. Grimkel himself kicks the bucket soon after, leading to some flared tempers when Horth returns to Iceland to find his inheritance in the grasping palms of his high-handed brothers-in-law. Horth tries to settle down and run the family farm, but he and his friends Helgi soon squabble with the neighbors over some hot-blooded horses and several killings result. Outlawed for their crimes, Horth and his crew move to Gersholm, an island refuge where they become leaders of the largest outlaw collective Iceland's ever seen. But the rising tide round the island is matched by tensions with the mainland, and several of the outlaw islanders' raids end in killings. After a particularly bloody fracas that leaves 30 men dead, Horth is contemplating leaving Iceland entirely. But the mainlanders are determined to give Horth six feet of Icelandic earth as a permanent resting place. It was a bit of a packed episode last time. And this final part is going to be more of the same. This saga is giving us three episodes worth of swash and more than a few buckles. Well, I mean, Hor and his company aren't, they're not really pirates. Uh, but yeah, they <laughs> swash and they buckle with the best of them. Um, but yeah, they're just thieves and occasionally killers. Right, but that just sounds like land pirates. 
<laughs> well, I mean, they do, you know, they get out on their ferry quite often. Um, mm-hmm. They're using ships to raid uh, because, you remember, they're on their island to hide out. See, so pirates, or really just mm. lazy Vikings. Uh, I mean, if <laughs> they'd gone overseas and done exactly this same thing, right, establish a base and raid until they got rich, they'd be celebrated on their return to Iceland. Absolutely. But that's not who they are. They're outlaws, and as we, as we just heard in the review, they're now openly at war, even with their own extended families. Right, yes. We ended last time with Horth's battle with his brother-in-law, Ilugi the Red. And it's obviously a serious development that Horth's kin, at least some of them, are now actively engaged in trying to kill him. Right, And that was a massive battle by Saga standards. Yeah, it was. Uh, as we said in the recap, there was something like 30 men killed between the two sides. Mm-hmm. So there's consequences to come from a bloodbath like that. And uh, speaking of which, why don't you spin us a little something about what's in store for Horth and the home dwellers this time around? Well, I don't mind if I do. In this episode, Horth and his home-dwelling companions continue their struggle to survive as outlaws on Gersholm. With so many mouths to feed, they spare no stranger, friend, or relation in their effort to put food on the table. They steal sheep. They steal pigs. They steal cattle, robbing the local farmers of their livelihood and sustenance. And after a failed raid on the farm of Indri, the husband of Horth's sister Thorbjorn goes poorly, the locals hatch a scheme to rid themselves of the outlaws once and for all. But they'll have to watch out for Thorbjorn, who remembers her oath from childhood and promises to kill the man who strikes her brother down. Will the home-dwelling outlaws fall for the farmer's tricks? Or will Horth and his loyal companions see through the charade and teach the farmers a thing or two about messing with the men of Gersholm? Will Thorbjörg have to make good on her oath? And if Horth falls, what will become of his wife Helga and their two sons? Find out as Saga Thing presents the thrilling conclusion to The Saga of Horth and the Home Dwellers, chapters 29 to 41. Okay, so that's all happening. Uh, I, I do want to set up a couple of things real quick as we get started. Just a couple things to keep track of as we tackle the rest of this saga. Well, I mean, this is our podcast, so I think we can bring up whatever we want. Uh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> I know we've uh, spread the Outlaw sagas out over an extended period of time. We covered Gisli something like six or seven years ago, and Gretter was about five years back. That's a long time. That's a, a very long time. Right. So as we're reading this... Especially as the narrative threads of Horde Saga are starting to come together, I do want us to be paying attention to how this saga runs parallel with Gisli and Gretter. Mm-hmm. And we've already had a few whoppers, I think. Like the the raid on Saudi's Mound in the first episode, which was almost point for point the battle between Gretter and the undead farmer Glaum. And then there's the island-dwelling outlaw motif, which we obviously also saw in Gretter's saga. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, of course, but... I think it's also interesting to look at how it isn't like them. Because hmm. remember, back when we started this saga, we were making the point about how much this saga really isn't like the others. Well, okay, I, I think we were making a point about the perceived quality of the saga relative to the other two outlaw sagas, but okay. Uh, so let's just keep one eye on how this saga is and isn't like the others. I think that's fair. All right, uh, you ready to get started? There's a lot to do. I think so. Uh, let's see how things are going out on Gears Home. On Home Island, where the outlaws dwell. Part 9. Blood, Water, and Fire. So, 
When we left Horth and Gear and their friends, they they just lost a large number of their followers in a brutal fight with Horth's brother-in-law, Ilugi the Red. Right, and even before that, they'd lost Thord the Cat, one of their closest followers on the island. But there's still a large community on the Outlaws Island, including Horth and Gare, Helge Sigmundersen, Thorgar Beltbeard, and Sigurd Torvi's foster brother. And, well, somewhere between 100 and 200 people. Right, and that number includes Horth's wife, Helga the Earl's daughter, and their young Mm -hmm. sons, Grimkill and Bjorn. So it, it's a good-sized village they built out on the mm-hmm. island. And um, I was looking through my pictures again, John, and the, the island's big enough to support <laughs> that. I mean, it, it's not huge, but you could get those people on there if you your, want to. Your incidental pictures of the island <laughs> taken I did while have, you were doing selfies on the <laughs> no, it was funny. I, I did have a selfie of myself that I sent my wife that night, and, and one of them had the island in the background. <laughs> and I didn't see it until after we recorded. I was like, oh, crap, that's the island. So yeah, it's there. So I did include <laughs> one of them, not a selfie, but one of the pictures with our last episode. Nice. Uh, but anyways, as we were talking about, the, the tensions with the mainland are really heating up at this point, And the people of Olfusvatten and the surrounding territory are getting more and more frustrated with the presence of this outlaw community that keeps coming in and stealing their sheep. Right. I mean, you can see why they'd be a little peeved about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the raids this group keeps running are a problem. As we said, they're more or less acting like Vikings but Vikings that don't get to sail away afterward. Yeah, they just go back to their island and wait a little while and then attack again. Exactly. Now they know how the English felt. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Not so funny now, is it? Uh, Now, once the the outlaws have spent a few months licking their wounds from that last disastrous raid on Elugis, Horth and Gear lead a group of 14 men on a risky winter raid to gain meat for the rest of the winter. They're smarter about it this time, though, and they move through the countryside for a long distance, or far away from where people are on their guard. And they raid a farm belonging to Horth's other brother-in-law, Indridi. Crazy. They do successfully steal 80 sheep, but a terrible snowstorm makes the trip back very difficult, and they're barely able to make their way through the snow. Horth really has a problem with his brother's-in-law, doesn't he? Hmm? Oh, come, I mean, all right, he does, yes. He does? He, why did he go steal 80 sheep from this guy? He he comes by it honestly. I mean, remember, his uncle Torvi was pretty nasty about his sister marrying Grimkill. But this is a different kind of nastiness. Mm-hmm. Horth leads this group of men past a lot of other farms through a winter storm before wiping out Indridi's flock of sheep. <laughs> He's basically trying to provoke the in-laws at this point. Well, I mean, every family's got that one brother-in-law or aunt-in-law who can't help causing trouble, Andy. If you're thinking to yourself right now, my family's not like that, well, then you probably are that in-law to someone else. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Uh, Well, maybe not to the extent of ransacking their houses and murdering people. Maybe not. Maybe. This Horde's a special case, though. Well, he, but he definitely does seem to be antagonizing them on purpose, yes. Yeah. Uh, There's a certain amount of inference involved, though. We don't really get any information about this raid beyond what I've already said. Oh, except that they slaughter the sheep immediately. This community isn't interested in careful animal husbandry through the winter months. What they want is meat now. That's right. Well, remember, we had that uh, comment in our rune sack a couple episodes ago about Mm -hmm. transporting meat. And the easiest way to get livestock across uh, a body of water is to kill it before you put it on the boat. Right. Make it dead stock. Make it dead stock, right? So anyway, so obviously this raid just adds fuel to the growing belief on the mainland that something has to be done about this outlaw island. Well, I mean, nobody has a chance to do much about the outlaws for a while. I mean, with, with 80 sheep and all the other food they've got, 
the Islanders don't need to mount another raid until spring. But when they do, it's a big one. And it's a very big one. Horth brings Gare, Helgi, Sigurd, Thorger, Beltbeard, and 60 other men with him for, well, I mean, it's presented as a raid, but it, it really, with that number, amounts to a small invasion force. Yes. And his target, once again, is the farm of his brother-in-law, Indrithi, and his sister, Thorbjörg. The guy yeah, who offered him shelter when he asked for help. That's true. Not that long ago, really, in, in no. sort of textual time. Uh, and this is when we start to get a hint that there's something more going on here. Horth and the men wait until Indridi's cowherd, Svart, and Svart's assistant, who's a small boy, drive a herd of cattle into the grass fields by the farm. They pounce on the herd, and they drive it away toward the west. Svart and the boy are brought along with them, but when they stop for the night, they kill Svart. But just Svart, right? They don't kill the kid that's with him. Yeah, no, hang on. They don't kill the boy. And that night, after the outlaws have all gone to sleep, this boy manages to sneak away. Mm. And he steals the cows back. Since they actually know him and are used to him, he's able to drive them right back to Indridi's farm in the dark. Right. And he does get away with it, too. Mm-hmm. And and where this gets weird is that Horth is awake the whole time and he watches the kid escape with the cows. <laughs> and he even says, go now, boy, because things are put to better use by my sister than by the people of home. Right. And so that's a very strange thing to say, yes. especially since Horth previously led a raid on Indridi's sheep and allowed 80 of them to be taken and slaughtered. But you do start to get the impression that Horth is feeling himself to be a little bit trapped here. Well, I mean, that, that does make sense because on the one hand, he's the leader of a large band of men that count on him and providing for them is part of his duty as a leader. Sure. But on the other hand, we saw last time that Horth isn't actually in favor of most of what his men are doing. Yeah. He may be obligated to lead this band of ruffians, but it's increasingly clear that he doesn't control them. Yeah, and he, he doesn't really like stealing. He's he's made that that clear, but right, they're outlaws, right. you know? Control of themselves maybe isn't something that they all excel at in the first place. Yeah, but we, we are left with the idea that Horth may not approve morally of some of what he's doing as a ringleader of this group. Yeah, which is an interesting dynamic for his character. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, in any case, in the morning, Gear wants to return to the farm and re-steal the cows, but Horth overrules him. Uh, So instead, they steal the pigs from a bunch of nearby farms and bring a nice pork dinner home. Okay, so that's also important because Mm -hmm. it's clear that Horth is no saint here. Yeah. He's fine with stealing from farmers. He'd just prefer to leave his sister's cattle alone. Right. Now, that's entirely fair. Uh, We could also ask Svart whether he admires Horth's moral restraint. Except we can't do that because Svart's already been summarily executed. Also true. And the boy, of course, tells Thorbjorg and Indri everything that happened. So mm-hmm. Horth may have let the kid go, but he's still getting plenty of the blame for trying to steal the livestock in the first place. Right. And and he and his men continue to have, at best, mixed success when it comes to rustling. Uh, that summer, while most of the important men of the district are at the all thing, Horth leads a raid on the farm of Thorgrim, a craftswoman. They manage to get away with Thorgrim as oxen, But one of them, the gray-spotted one, snuffles at the others, and they escape and return to Thorgrim's farm. He he snuffles at them. You you said snuffles, right? Yeah. You you don't like snuffles? Uh, He makes loud sniffing noises. Oh, there you go. 
he's he's probably a magical ox, uh, possibly a kind of familiar of Thordruma, who's mm-hmm. pretty clearly a sorceress. Yes, and isn't she um, Indri's mother? She is. Yeah, that's going to become important later yeah. on in our yeah. in our narrative. But yes, absolutely, she's she's the mother of Indri, and so the I guess she, what would that make her the mother in law by proxy. To Horth? I, I, I don't, think I don't really know how that, that relationship works. I don't think there's a proxy there, no. I don't <laughs> right. think that's how that works. But anyway, whatever's going on with Snuffleupagus the Ox, <laughs> losing yet another raid's worth of livestock is something of a wake-up call to Horth. Yeah, I mean, he's been outmaneuvered by a cow with a head cold. It's, a, <laughs> it's hard to put a positive spin on that. Exactly. So Horth decides it's time to make a change. He tells his men that he wants to stop living by stealing from people. Mm-hmm. It seems to me a bad idea of ours at present that we only live by robbery. Okay, I, well, we have to say that's actually quite a reasonable reaction. It like is. Maybe he's going to... Hang on, no. No, no, yeah. there's more. <laughs> yes, he says, I want us to go instead to the merchants of Fuita and give them two hard choices. Either they turn their ship over to us or else we kill them. Oh, see, see that's not great. It really isn't. I mean, he's talking about let's stop robbing. Let's go <laughs> right. threaten these men. Right. Let's go rob death. people so that we can stop <laughs> <Yes>. robbing. <laughs> right. right. Essentially, Horth's solution to being to being a thief is to make one last big score and then clear out of town. Right. This this is feeling like less of a moral issue for him and more about not wanting to push his luck too far. Yeah. Although maybe maybe it is a moral issue and he's just terrible at morality. Is that possible? Well, he is terrible at morality. I think we established that. <laughs> But we can say for sure that he's not as bad at it as the rest of his crew. Uh, Gear, for instance, is willing to go along with him, but he adds a rider. Before we go, I want to burn Torvi Valbrinson and Cole at Lund, and Colgrim the Old, and Indridi, and Elugi the Red in their homes. <laughs> That's <laughs> And burn a partridge in a pear tree while he's at it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so Gear basically wants to set fire to the whole district. Uh, Gear is an angry young man. And he's especially targeting Horth's extended family. Torvi mm-hmm. Valbrinson is Horth's uncle. Elugi mm-hmm. the Red and Indri are his brothers-in-law. Like, this is they are, yeah. nasty. Uh, yeah, and after a while, Horth actually agrees to attack his brothers-in-law on the grounds that they haven't stood with him in the various troubles he's had. Troubles like stealing from their farms. Yeah, like that. Like little peccadilloes. Now, now, but to be fair, Horth was hoping for help from them at the beginning of this conflict. Well, and got it. No, he was, he he was offered he was the opportunity outlawed. to stay with Indridi. He was never told. Remember, Helgi kept yeah, that back. Yeah, well, that's so true. So as far as he true. knows, there was never any offer. Yeah. Now, if Horth were a different man in a different era, well, he might write a strongly worded letter about feeling betrayed by his in-laws. But he's Horth, so he puts together an 80-man raiding party. 80 and gets men. all of them hidden in the woods near the farm that Indridi shares with Horth's sister Thorbjorg. Right, and meanwhile, Thorbjorg has had a premonition of the attack. So this is going to be it's, another It's uh, another dream, John. It is. You like yes, dreams, exactly. don't you? Yeah, I know. I'm on the record as not liking this device, but this one is at least legit as far as its symbology goes. Thorbjorg dreams of 80 wolves approaching the farm, breathing fire and led by a sad polar bear. <laughs> Indridi interprets this as the thoughts of the men of home turning against him, but Thorbjorg, Thorbjorg says... No, I'm pretty sure it'll be the men themselves, and they'll be coming by fairly soon. <laughs> it's a good pragmatic bit of dream interpretation. Yeah. But John, are we really going to just ignore a phrase like a uh, sad polar bear? <laughs> Look, 
Okay, that is an accurate translation. I mean, I'm not arguing about the translation. It's a ridiculous concept. 80 fire-breathing wolves and one depressed bear at the <laughs> at the front. You don't know that bear's life, Andy. Don't judge him. Thanks for noticing me. <laughs> yeah, I kind of want a t-shirt with a sad polar bear on it now. A, a, a bipolar bear? <laughs> <laughs> How about a, uh, a pensive alpaca? Really? Or a melancholy ocelot? We can do adjective animal noun jokes all night. <laughs> You're right. We're better than that. No, we're not. It's just late. Yes, fair enough. So this unhappy Ursidae is supposed to be whore than his dream logic. <laughs> but uh, more importantly, she's right that her brother is about to lead 80 men in an attempt to burn her farm down. Yeah, well, they're after her husband, but that's not much consolation. Fortunately, she's prepared for this. Now, I know you're thinking, how can she be prepared for this? Well, Thorbjorg is going to take a page from the saga of Ref the Sly. Ooh, does she have a fire suppression system built up? Right. So, back in Ref's saga, for those of you who don't actually memorize these things for some reason, Ref built a kind of fort in Greenland that had a pipe system and water flowing through the walls to put out any attempt at burning the place down. Thorbjörg doesn't have that kind of time, right? The the wolves are already waiting out in the wings with their sad polar bear. So she has to settle for redirecting a stream to flow into her house, flooding the ground floor while all the household goods are lifted up into the rafters. Mm Mm-hmm. Then she sends word around to the other farms in the area, asking for supporters to come en masse to the farm the next day. Oh, and she also orders her men to build a bunch of unnecessary chimneys into the roof, which can serve as a kind of set of defensive turrets for archers. Thorbjorg, in other words, is not playing around. And it's a good thing, too, because Horth and his men show up the very next day. Uh-huh. Horth and Thorbjorg are pleasant in speaking with one another, but she tells him to abandon his friends, which he simply won't do. And he asks her to come away from the house and abandon her husband, which she won't do. Mm-hmm. And then Thorbjorg re-enters the house and Horth's men start piling wood up in front of the doors and set them on fire. So at this point, Horth is okay with his little sister being burned alive. I mean, it's not a great look for him, to be honest mm-hmm. with you, um, but he's not actually the one setting fire. Oh, okay. Well, that's all right then. Well, I mean, ultimately, it's not a problem because no, it's Thorbjörg- it's a problem. Uh, it's going to be an awkward family dinner at Yule this year. Well, I mean, he doesn't actually expect Thorbjorg to stay in there, does he? Uh, and the house actually doesn't even burn down. Thorbjorg's artificial pond inside the house provides more than enough water to douse the flames. Mm-hmm. Even when Gare and the others find and block the stream running into the house, there's still way more water than they need to keep putting the fires out and. When the outlaws see signs of a large band of men riding toward the farm. Right, and these are the reinforcements that Thorbjörg sent for the day before. Yes, and they're freaked out because there are a lot of them. The outlaws are now forced to run, and really the only damage to the farm is from the water that Thorbjörg had to flood the house with. And there's one casualty mentioned, though, because before he left, Thor threw a spear that killed one of the defenders stationed in one of the fake chimneys. But Uh that's really all they accomplish. I mean, I'm not necessarily advocating for burning your enemy's farmhouses, but that was pathetic. Thorbjörg just totally outfaced her brother. Mm-hmm. Forget about killing Indridi. They never even saw him. Oh, but he saw them, John. Mm-hmm. And so did all those men coming over the hillside to rescue the farm. And not surprisingly, the neighborhood is not pleased about this escalation in hostilities. <laughs> oh, no wonder Horth's such a sad polar bear. <laughs> Part 10, The Neighborhood Watch.
All right. So Horv's crew has stolen several farms' livestock, fought a couple of fairly bloody battles against the locals, and made a spirited attempt to burn a respected family's farm with them inside. Mm. So everything's going great right now. Well, I mean, as you'd expect, the people of the district are continuing to grow tired with this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the attempted hull burning may have been a bit much. Uh, So the locals call a meeting at Leval. All the chieftains of the district and all the farmers and even the workmen are called. And many of them turn up to decide what to do about the home dwellers. And at Indrithi's house, they've been trying to dry out for... (laughs) And at Indrithi's house, they've been trying to dry out the house for days. But (laughs) Indrithi takes a break from mopping to go to a meeting. And Thorbjörg says that she also intends to go. They argue for a bit, and Indrithi then refuses to take her because he says she's likely to hear some things that might upset her. Like how they're all planning to kill her brother. Like that, exactly. So he rides off to the meeting without her, but she just gets her own horse and rides along separately. Mm -hmm. And when she gets to the meeting, it's already in full swing. There's a large crowd of people all shouting and trying to organize. But when she arrives, the entire crowd goes silent. And she says, I think I know what your actions and intentions are. And therefore, I won't hide from you what occupies my mind. I shall slay the man, or shall have him slain, who kills my brother Horth. And then she gets on her horse and rides back to her farm. Oof. That is that is quite an entrance and quite an exit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the men gathered there are still determined to fight back against the outlaws, even under that threat. Uh, a sort of committee forms made up of Indridi, Elugi the Red, Horth's uncle Torvi, Torvi's friend, Kol Kjallikson from Lund, Kolgrim the Old, the brothers, Ref and Kjartan Kotlison, Thorsten Oxgode, Orm of Fam, and a few other men. Uh, yeah, and if you uh, if you read through the saga, they've robbed most of these men yeah, at some they, point. They've all felt the sting right, of the home dwellers, or at least antagonized. Right? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Torvi is the is the first in the group to call for actually killing the outlaws. Of course, he is. It's obvious to everyone here that the only thing to be done is to put these scoundrels to death. You can see that they won't go easy on anyone when Horth would try to burn his own brothers-in-law to death. I know we don't like Torvi, but he's got a valid point. Like, Oh, it's entirely valid. He's and, a decent judge of character. Well, <laughs> and they've all agreed about what needs to be done. The problem is how to do it. Horth mm-hmm. and his men have created what amounts to an island fortress. Right? The idea of trying to assault an island defended by over a hundred fighting men doesn't appeal to any of them, and you can see why. An island with sheer cliffs right. that surround it. Yeah. Uh, what's what's needed here is obviously some kind of plan. A cunning plan? Actually, yes. Uh, Ref, right. who's a powerful chieftain, speaks up and suggests finding someone who's willing to sail out to the island by himself to mm. offer the outlaws amnesty if they'll leave the region. So the clever plan is to just make these guys someone else's problem. Oh, no, 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 no. They're, they're planning to kill them. But they'd rather not That's have to better. attack the island. So they're going to try to lure the outlaws to the mainland and then kill them when they come off the boat. Gotcha. And everyone likes this idea. So Torvi suggests they leave immediately and go straight to the shore so that there's no time for anyone to leak information about this plan. That's very smart. It actually things, is. Things start moving rather quickly. Uh, So all these men, and there are a lot of them, they all ride out to the headland near the island, and they camp on the far side of it so that they're not visible to the home dwellers. Again, smart. And then they have a nice breakfast and wait. Sure. I mean, why not 
camp out, have a bit of porridge, maybe a fried egg. What's the rush? Well, I mean, it was a long and hungry ride. And as a bonus, the place where they camp comes to be known as Dogverdenis. Dogverdenis. Breakfast Headland. Yeah, I know. Pretty good, right? Just a little ridiculous is all. I think it's it's spot on. <laughs> and meanwhile, the home dwellers have no idea that any of this is happening. And they've just sent a ship with a dozen men to collect drinking water from the mainland, which mm-hmm. is another great detail. I love that they have to go and to fetch all these different resources. Right, right. right. So Sigurd, Torfi's foster brother, and Thorgar Beltbeard are leading the group. And they come ashore with no particular idea of any danger at all. They don't, uh, they don't smell the cooking fires of all those breakfasts. Oh, they're upwind. You just made that so up. No. <laughs> upwind. Yeah, no. They, no they, they just don't know what's coming. Uh, it, it works like that in stories sometimes, yeah. John. <laughs> but suddenly two dozen men come tearing around the promontory of the headland and plow into them. Right, presumably still wiping their mouths. Yeah. Like, uh, oh, now, this grease. group is led by Cole from Lund, uh, Cole Kallixen. This is the, uh, if you think back to the first episode, this is the same guy who escorted Horth's mom, Signy to her wedding to Grimkel a couple of episodes back. Well, he's got to be getting up there in years at this point. Yeah, he's well-preserved. Um, but he's brought 23 more men with him, including a fighting champion named Thorvald Blackbeard, who, as I say, is presumably still wiping bits of egg from his glorious facial hair as he lumbers into <laughs> battle. So this is already a two-to-one numbers disadvantage for the outlaws. Yeah. And it gets worse in a hurry because Thorgar Beltbeard and six other men immediately turn and run for it. Damn it, Beltbeard. Yeah, no, emphasis on the run. Uh, The other men just scatter, but Thorgar Beltbeard runs as far as Fityar, which is at least 20 miles. Well, at least we know he wasn't tripping on his beard. It's safely tucked away. That is a that's a healthy jog for yeah. Man. It might be farther. Uh, a lot of the place names in the saga aren't super clear on a modern map of Iceland. It's definitely meant to be a notably long way to run, though. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that's the that's the end of Thorgir Beltbeard in this saga. Uh, long may he run. There John. you go. Long may he run. Uh, he actually later tries to put together his own team of outlaws near Borgafjord, but they get run off. And as the saga author helpfully tells us. Then Thorgir fled north to Strondir and was killed there, as is oh. told in the Tale of Alfgir. Oh, good. So, so now a we have that, that we can, we can go look for. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Uh, but right now, Sigurd Torvi's foster brother and his four remaining companions are now facing almost five to one odds down by breakfast point. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no way this ends well for them. But oh, John, why are we missing the opportunity here? It should be point breakfast. Point. <laughs> <laughs> Point breakfast. <laughs> Point breakfast. Oh, you're the worst. Um, yeah, no, there's there's no way this ends well for them. Um, they do a lot of damage before the end, though. Uh, Sigurd's four friends are all killed, obviously. But he and they take down 11 men before that happens. Mm-hmm. And then Sigurd kneels in the sand and empties his revolver into the sky. <laughs> Is that what he does? <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that. Um, but that means that there's still 13 men surrounding Sigurd, mm-hmm. and you'd think this would be a moment of reckoning. As we keep saying, Sigurd is Torvi's foster brother, mm-hmm. as in the same Torvi who's masterminding the entire attack. They they grew up together. Sure, I mean, sure, but but Torvi's also the actual uncle of Horth, and that's clearly not stopping him either. No, that's true, absolutely. But at the moment, it's Sigurd who's alone and surrounded by Torvi's flunkies. Yeah, but I think the narrative's set up that neither one knows that the other is directly involved in this fight. 
Right? Torvi's not with this group to identify his foster brother, even if he did want to spare him, which he never suggests he would. Yeah, he's still back at the camp cleaning up from breakfast, I presume. Right. Uh, I'll find out he does the dishes himself. Fair enough, right. Uh, And for his part, Sigurth didn't know this attack was coming, and he didn't know that his foster brother is the one organizing it. Well, the entire thing's pretty much moot anyway, because the fighting man, Thorvald Blackbeard, immediately runs Sigurth through with a spear. Oh dear. But with his last breath, Sigurth manages to throw his axe into Thorvald's skull. Mm. So the two of them fall down dead together. Pretty dramatic. Good scene. Yeah, so that that brings us to uh, 17 dead so far, and 12 of them are from Torvi's side. Oh, uh, but there's also that, uh, what, seven outlaws who ran off. So I suppose that evens things up a bit from an attrition standpoint. Right, but a one-for-one bloodbath isn't what the mainlanders were hoping for when they hatched their plot. Right. So it's time to launch the cunning part of the cunning plan. (laughs) And for that, they're going to need a volunteer. Part 11. Nothing can rescue the doomed. All right, so who's volunteering? And before anyone does volunteer, what exactly are they volunteering to do? Well, remember, the the plan is to send a ship out to the island and offer amnesty if the outlaws will leave. Oh, right. And then the plan is to slaughter the outlaws when they get off the ship on the mainland. Exactly. So they need someone to bring that fake amnesty offer over to the island. Someone who's a convincing actor, ideally, (laughs) uh, or maybe one who's likely to get killed as soon as he reaches the island. Someone expendable, maybe. Right. Uh, And even though they all came out to the shore to do exactly this, it seems they forgot to actually assign that job to someone. Just a small detail. You know, uh, (laughs) now that the time has come to bell the cat... No one is exactly leaping at the chance to go face a mob of outlaws and lie to them. Can't imagine why that's not an appealing prospect. Yeah, and there's a there's a few minutes of uncomfortable silence at this point. <laughs> uh, and finally, Torvi says, You know, the man who goes will benefit from the great prestige he'll earn for doing this, and he'll seem a much bigger man than before. Crickets. <laughs> Dead silence from the crowd. Um... Just a thought, the people on the island have probably run out of good luck anyway. There's a bit of throat clearing, <laughs> uh, shuffling of feet, nothing. You, you know, because of all the crimes they've committed that, that we're here to put an end to. <laughs> and finally, one man steps forward. It's Kjartan Cutlison. Yeah, this is the brother of the chieftain, Ref Cutlison. Right. Kjartan is a well-respected warrior and a man known for his quick reflexes. And he says, I will risk going if it is agreed that I... Why am I talking like that? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I say. I say. I should go. He says, I'll risk going if it is agreed that I am to have the arm ring taken from Soti's mound if we manage to hunt Horth down. Right. And everyone agrees to that, of course, uh, if only because it was getting so awkward standing around listening to Torvi yeah. beg. <laughs> so, Kjartan's in charge now. Uh, and his plan is to commandeer the ferry boat that belongs to Thorsten Goldbutton and use that to offer transport to the outlaws on the island. And this is actually a legitimately good plan. Mm-hmm. We've got good yeah. plans functioning in this saga. It's yep. great. <laughs> 
Thorstein Goldbutton is the guy who's been providing the home dwellers with transport back and forth from the mainland, and he's sworn an oath never to betray the trust of that outlaw band. Yeah, and this, I have to say, this seems like kind of a violation of that trust. It kind of does, doesn't it? But on the other hand, no one's actually asking Thorstein. Mm. Kjartan's just taking his boat. On the other hand, though, nope. Thorstein's just fine with betraying the I'll Islanders, be. and on, he's on, now... Hang on, hang on. Oh, what'd I do? Look, it, it, you already said on the other hand, so this is on the other other hand. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Okay. Uh, well, yes, it is. But on the other hand, no one's actually asking Thorstein. Mm. Carton's True. just taking his boat. But uh, on the other other hand, uh, <laughs> Thorstein... Just the first just, hand again. He, he's just fine with betraying the Islanders, and he's now allied with Torvi's crowd. Yeah, I think the other other hand is just that first hand again. I mean, it could be. It depends on whether you have help or not. There could be many hands in <laughs> uh-huh. that. <laughs> well, regardless of how many limbs it takes to sort it out, the upshot is that Carton's got camouflage for what he's doing. Mm-hmm. The boat he crosses to the island in is the same one that the outlaws expect to see regularly. Yes. But Carton's not just trusting to subterfuge. He also throws on a coat of mail, hides that in a cloak, throws on another coat of mail over that just to be safe, Wow. And then rows across to Gearsholm. Two coats of armor. It's best to be prepared. Curtin's <laughs> a uh, two-inch belt and suspenders man. Gotcha. So he rows across, and there's a crowd waiting for him on the shore when he arrives at the island. He makes his pitch to the men on the shore and says that the residents of the district want to come to terms, and claims that Elugi the Red has proposed that the home dwellers should be allowed to go free as long as they go. Mm-hmm. Now, as you can imagine, this causes a bit of a stir among the outlaws. As many of them have been wanting to escape from the area for a while because, you know, they must be bored. They're, they're restless. They're worried about retaliation from the mm-hmm. mainlanders for all the recent attacks. So most people on shore are in favor of taking Kjartan at his word. Right. And the, the loudest voice among those is Gear, uh, Horth's foster brother and closest friend. I believe this to be truth. Because Kjartan comes to us in Thorsten Goldbutton's boat. He swore oaths never to betray us, so this must be truth. QED. QED. <laughs> it appears that Gear's uh, an educated man now. Well, that's a loose translation. <laughs> well, well, Horth is not impressed by it. Gear and I have often disagreed because we've always seen things in different ways. It seems to me that in Kjartan they've found a poor man to bring us this message, as it is. Nor do we count Kjartan as a friend to us. Ouch. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kjartan's just sitting right there in the boat. So it's uh, not like this is a private conversation. No, no. <laughs> and he pipes up. Hey, there's no need to bring that up. It doesn't matter when someone's bringing a pledge of peace. I'm only telling the truth. I'll swear to it if you think that's more reliable. And it's uh, worth a reminder at this point that Horv's special talent is that mm-hmm. he can see through lies. He absolutely can. He knows that Kjartan's full of horse apples at this point, and so he makes his point with a special Horth verse. To me it seems the tree of battle who bids us leave would not fail, feeble-hearted, to spy on us. That god of golden sea shine who seeks this would never leave here uninjured were I the bowbreaker to rule. So his feelings here are fairly clear. 
Oh, yeah. He's not buying Carton at any price. Well, the problem is most of his men are buying in and mm-hmm. Horth sees that there's really no point in trying to stop them. I would say less mouths to feed. Let him go. I mean, that's 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 harsh. Um, <laughs> the majority of the men pack onto the boat. Uh, Horth, Gear, and Helgi Sigmundersen remain on the island, though, with a minority of the men. But more than half are able to cram onto the boat. And Carton promises that he and the departing outlaws will be back with more boats for the rest of them soon. Now, Horth just shakes his head and says, I expect that those trusting Carton will be less cheerful by the end of the day. And at that, the boat takes off for the mainland, going around the headland so that those left on the island can't see what happens next. And the gathered mob is also hiding so that no one on the boat sees the danger until they're moored on land. And as you said, this is actually a reasonably good plan for once. As soon as they tie the boat, though, men come pouring out of every hiding spot on the horizon and swarm all over the outlaws. They're dragged off the boat, their hair is twisted up, and their heads are chopped off one after another. It's a slaughter, and it takes only minutes to kill every man Kjartan had brought back with him. And that, that reference to twisting up the hair of the men before beheading them is, is interesting to me. Mm. I mean, obviously, it's to get the hair out of the way for the chop of the axe, and it's something of a, a trope to twist a man's hair with a stick before beheading. But it's hard to believe that it matters much to the end result. I mean, yeah. Any axe blow that can behead a grown man is probably not going to bounce off because the guy's got a mullet. <laughs> uh, in fairness, though, thick hair tightly braided is surprisingly strong. Uh, True. Probably there's someone out there who can tell us exactly why they do this. I mean, if you know why this tradition exists, uh, grabbing the hair, um, I I assume it's very clearly just to get the hair out of the way and have a clear spot to chop with your axe. But Possibly a way uh, to suspend the head afterward. Well, you can hold them in place, too. You've got control of the heads. They can't jerk around, right? But uh, if you're an expert on uh, beheadings and executions, (laughs) well, write in to Saga Thing and try not to be too gruesome in your explanations if you can avoid it. Yeah, let's have have only family-friendly discussions of decapitation details, please. Please. Uh, (laughs) No, I, I think this does bring us back to the literary nature of this saga. You mean the, the written quality of it? You don't think they just yeah. did that? Right. Well, I mean, we talked about this in the first episode, right? This is a later saga in terms of its composition date, and it's very aware of the conventions of the genre. And this uh, mass execution by beheading, complete with that detail of the hair being wound up on sticks beforehand, that's something we can find elsewhere. Uh, mm. The Jomsviking saga immediately comes to mind. It's exactly what I was thinking of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, in that story, a group of men who are all members of the Jomsviking order are captured by their enemies and beheaded one by one. Mm-hmm. But that story is about how well the doomed men act and how they go to their deaths with great courage. This isn't actually that much like it. We 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 don't get anything about how the outlaws act. They right. just die with their hair bound up one after the other. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah, the scenes aren't the same at all, but there are details about it that ring the same notes. Mm-hmm. As opposed to something like the Greenlanders saga, where we saw a mass execution of prisoners that lacked these details about the manner of execution. Uh, okay, so in this case, the outlaws are massacred without much difficulty in this very kind of literary way. And the mainlanders are now convinced that Torvi was right. The home dwellers' luck has run out. And so they send Kjartan back to the island to pick up another load of victims. Yes, but this clever plan is about to hit a snag. 
Mm-hmm. Because remember, that Carton said he and the first load of outlaws would be back with more ships to bring the rest of the home dwellers to the mainland. Mm-hmm. So when he returns by himself, well, naturally, they have a few questions. <laughs> a few, yeah. But you know, that old Carton's so sly and so slick, he thought up a lie and he thought it up quick. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, you see, they were all so happy about the truce that they... <laughs> ran ashore and didn't want to come back. So you see how that is. See, it's not really any more believable in the saga than you're making it sound. Uh, Carton <laughs> is a terrible liar. Right. And yet astoundingly, almost everyone believes him. Right? They they really want to get out of this situation they've gotten themselves I think into. that much is clear. Yeah. yeah. The, the situation on the island just isn't good. Right. Uh, I mean, as you said, they're, they're having to even go ashore to get water at this point, right? It's, yeah. it's not great. So Gear buys in and takes nearly the entire population with him on the second trip. Horth, of course, still isn't buying any of it, and seven other men stay with him, including Helgi Sigmundersen. Oh, and Horth's wife, Helga the Earl's daughter, and their two sons, of course, stay behind as well. But everyone else is eager to go, mm-hmm. and so the good ship murder plot sets off once more. <laughs> But when Kjartan sails around the headland this time, the waiting men haven't bothered to hide again, and Ger spots them as they're approaching. He realizes quickly that Horth was right, and he jumps overboard, trying to swim to safety as quick as he can. But a Norwegian named Orm, who's one of Indri's men, throws a spear and hits Ger between the shoulders, killing him as he swims. And that's that. Uh, it's, it's not the epic ending we might have hoped for for Ger. No. But really... It's the only appropriate end for a character who's been so consistently wrong about everything that he's ever done. <laughs> okay, granted. But but still, face down in the bay with a spear in his back, that's a tough ending for our angry young man. It is. And the rest of the home dwellers on the ship are also slaughtered. But again, the conspirators are getting sloppy now. And this time, Helga catches sight of them from the island shore. Mm-hmm. Horth also looks, but for some reason can't see it as well as she does. Yeah. And soon enough, Kjartan arrives a third time, this time in a smaller six-oared ship. Well, there aren't as many people left on the island. Uh, But Horth is smelling a Kjartan-sized rat and asks why Gear hasn't come back with him to confirm that everybody's safe. And Kjartan replies, why, Gear's waiting on shore so that you can all come to an agreement at the same time. Worst liar Ever. Uh, come on, Horth. We, we've got the roast beast all ready for a feast. And Horth isn't having any of this. <laughs> you took a lot on yourself, Kjartan, to transport all us home dwellers to land, and I'm sure you'll be rewarded for it by the district people. I'm not going anywhere. I've never trusted you, and I can't see any indication that you will prove to be good. Oh, is it so? It cannot be, Horth, that... You will prove less courageous than your men and not dare to go ashore. Are are you calling me chicken? <laughs> and there's the cheap blow to his manliness that we've been waiting for. Yeah, Horth has had this problem before, it's true. He knows the people around him are making stupid decisions, but he hates the idea of being thought too timid or too fearful or not decisive enough. But... Surely this one time, when he knows his enemies are against him, he can no, make no, it... No, no, he, no. He's already on the ship, John. Damn While it. you were talking, he jumped onto the ship. <laughs> <laughs> but when Horth turns to Helga, she says, 
I will not go, nor will my sons. It has now come to the point when nothing can rescue the doomed. Which are terrible words to hear from your wife. Yeah, no kidding. And so the Bye-bye. ship sails off, leaving Helga and her two boys on the island. Alone, right. I think. They're alone now, right? Yeah. Uh, and Hor is furious, but he doesn't get any real proof of his suspicions until the ship is nearly aground. And that's that's when he spots Gear's body still floating in the water offshore. They didn't even bother to hide the corpses. Yeah, they're getting really overconfident. Well, Horth's not going to make things quite as easy for them as the others did. He immediately calls Kjartan a wretched coward and strikes him over the head with a sword. And he cleaves Kjartan in half from head to waist, which Oof. includes cutting through the two coats of armor that Kjartan had put on earlier. See, he should have worn three coats. Well, you live and you learn, John. <laughs> not in Kjartan's case, you don't. <laughs> not true, he didn't. Uh, but the damage is done. Uh, the ship runs aground just as Horth kills Kjartan. And the outlaws are completely swarmed under. Horth manages to kill four men, but the sheer numbers are too much, and it's not long before he and his companions are disarmed and tied up. Indridi takes the job of tying Horth's hands, and he makes a tight job of it. And while he's doing that, Horth's other brother-in-law, Elugi the Red, says, Horth doesn't have good brothers-in-law, but then he doesn't deserve to have them. And Indridi responds, Long ago, he destroyed the value that any relationship with him through marriage might provide. I mean, that's probably fair. I uh, think so. Given that Horth did try to burn Indridi to death in his home. <laughs> uh, yes. But then Indridi holds out an axe and asks who wants the job of killing Horth. Uh-huh. And Horth slips his hands free and grabs the axe himself. <laughs> See? That's not smart. You don't dangle an axe in front of an outlaw. Well, especially in a story that has a pattern of people who escape from being tied up. With axes. Yes. Indridi really should have been paying more attention to those knots. He (laughs) needs uh, maybe some remedial Boy Scout training. (laughs) Well, uh, fortunately for him, Horde's more interested in escape than killing. And he and Helgi Sigmundersen both managed to break out of the circle of enemies around them and run for it. The uh, pursuers are right on their heels. And Ref manages to get on a horse to chase them, but mm-hmm. he's hesitant to take Horth one-on-one for the moment. Uh, I can't. And Ref manages to get on a horse to chase them, but he's hesitant to take Horth on one-on-one. Mm-hmm. And for a moment, it looks like Horth and Helgi might get away. Right, but then an uncanny fatigue overcomes Horth. Of course. He shakes it off once, he shakes it off twice, but the third time, he slows so much that the pursuers surround the two of them. Mm. Horth kills three men, and they escape the circle again. But Helgi takes a bad injury, and now Horth has to carry him. I would leave him right there. <laughs> I mean, given what he's been up to in this entire saga, I yes. know. But anyway, the, the fatigue is really interesting, and it's something that mm-hmm. we've seen before. It's usually magical in origin, and Horth does actually call it sorcery. But here it reads to me more like it's fate taking a hand. Mm-hmm. The, the author calls it like something like the fetters of war, but it's not a physical restraint. Horth's simply out of luck, as the gods predicted that he would oh. be. And it, it's not long before he becomes exhausted again, and the pursuers catch up to him once more. In other words, he, he can't outrun his own fate. Exactly. So Horth throws Helgi off his back and yells, There's strong magic involved in this. But you won't get your way in anything that I can still control. Well, I mean, that's great. But at this point, there's not much that he can still control. right? I mean, well, this is... then he, he turns and chops Helgi in half with the axe. Yeah. 
Oh, okay. That, that was unexpected. <laughs> Helgi, yeah, the guy. <laughs> and he says, you will not kill my sworn brother before my eyes. Oh, so he'll do it instead? Well, I mean, it's more of a gesture of defiance than anything else. Mm-hmm. And all the eyewitnesses later agree that Helgi was already dead. He, he had died of his <laughs> wounds while Horth was dragging him away. Um, and that means that Horth is alone now. Mm-hmm. His friends and foster brothers and followers are all gone. And it's just whore than an axe against a small army. Yeah. And he lifts that axe up and he says, Say hello to my little friend. No, no, he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't? No. He, no, no, mm. he does not. I thought he did. But anyway. <laughs> Whore's they, a lot of quips. He does stand up to them and they do hesitate. He still has power. He still yeah. has this this aura about him. Well, and don't forget that we've also got the aura of Thorbjörg's threat hanging over them all. Absolutely. The one who yeah. delivers the blow is going to have to deal with her. That's right. And and so because of all of that, no one dares to be the first to attack. And and so Horth is able to take the initiative. And he begins hacking wildly, killing and injuring men on all sides. Torvi shouts that the man who strikes Horth down will win the arm ring that Horth is wearing. The one he took from Soti's grave. Right, this would be the arm ring that Soti cursed and told Horth would be his death. Yes, exactly. It's prophecy. It's 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 whatever the opposite of irony is. It's wrinkly. It's it's, it's a wrinkly dramatic is, payoff. That's a very funny <laughs> joke, John. Um, <laughs> we can chalk this up to another similarity to Greta Asmunderson, the the curse of the undead monster that ultimately comes into play in the outlaw hero's death. I think that's right. Yeah, really going on here. Right, and it's also it bears some similarities to the last stand of Gisli uh, in yeah. Gisli Saga. Right, it's got that same kind of uh, vibe of one man against an army. It's a it's a it's an epic last stand. Right, we know he's going to die. The question is how much damage he can do before the end. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but what we've been focusing on this, Horde is continuing to hack his way through the crowd. He's totally surrounded, but no one can or wants to get close enough to strike a blow. Now, Horth kills six men and injures several others, and it's only when the head of his axe slips off the shaft that his enemies have a chance to retaliate. Mm. And in a last twist of cruel fate, it's Thorstein Goldbutton, Horth's ally-turned-traitor, who slips in behind him and strikes that fatal blow to the back of Horth's neck. And that's another of the Outlaw Saga themes. Right? The man who finally kills the Outlaw is clearly inferior in the various manly virtues to the outlaw himself. And that's reinforced in the immediate aftermath of Horde's death. We're told, everyone praised Horde's valor. They thought that among his contemporaries, no one had been more heroic or more intelligent than he, although he had not been, un- although he had not been a lucky man. I mean, that's a bit rich, given that he, he spent a lot of time trying to victimize his own extended family. I know, yeah. And occasionally got outsmarted by congested cows. But John, John, it's not nice to speak ill of the so recently dead. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Well, then let's just say that Horde lived and died as one of the top three outlaws about whom surviving sagas were written. (laughs) There you go. There you go. (laughs) Still a little harsh. Uh, Besides, we're not quite done with this surviving saga. Uh, The men who mobbed Horth might be impressed with Horth's last stand, but they're also pretty pleased with themselves for destroying the outlaw stronghold. A lot of backslapping going on. Yeah. And Thorstein Goldbutton is given credit for the fatal blow on Horth. Everyone's actually shouting it very loudly. Uh, It was Thorstein Goldbutton who (laughs) did the last blow. Him! It was him! 
definitely not me. Uh, and he's given the arm ring that Horde stole from the grave of Salty the Viking. Right. Again, this would be the cursed arm ring. What a the, great prize. Right. The one that Soti said would be the death of any man who owned it. That's the one. Sure. Wear it in good health, Thorsten. So then Indrithi claims Horth's sword. That's actually a good prize. It mm-hmm. also came from Salty's Mound, and it's it's really, really sharp. And then they all get to work counting up the dead. And altogether, there are nearly 60 men slaughtered in that mm-hmm. whole thing, along with the sworn brothers Horth, Geir, and Helgi. It's a huge death toll, and that would seem to be the end of the threat. But remember, they didn't clear out the island completely. Horth left a wife and two sons behind on the island. Mm-hmm. And he's got two sisters whose husbands just helped to hunt him down and kill him. Right. This isn't over yet. Part 12. The Broken Fragments. Okay. So the mainland men actually do remember that Helga and her boys are still on the island, and they discuss sending a ship out to try to kill Horth's sons. But it's getting late. It's been a long time since breakfast. So they settle down for the night. Uh, But first, they all swear an oath that none of them will protect or shelter Helga or her sons. So they're planning to go kill children in the morning. Yes. That's going to be a rough sleep. I think Mm -hmm. we can safely say at this point that our author isn't trying to make anyone in this saga sympathetic. None of the men, at least. Everyone's Uh, horrible. Wow. But, but the story now shifts to the women and children left behind after the slaughter. Mm-hmm. Right, first, there's Horth's sister Thorbjorg. She's not present, but remember that when she was about eight years old, she spoke a verse swearing to destroy anyone who killed her brother. Should I learn that you be slain with weapons or fallen in battle? To that man, my bitter counsel shall truly be a sentence of death. And then she was at the meeting where those men hatched their plot to kill Horth and his friends. And at that meeting, she swore again to take responsibility for revenge if her brother died. Yes. Here it is again. She says, I shall slay the man or shall have him slain who kills my brother Horth. Yeah. Now, notice that all those men who were at that meeting were reluctant to attack Horth, even though they'd been perfectly happy to massacre the rest of the outlaws. In fact, none of them do attack Ultimately, it's Thorsten Goldbutton, who wasn't at that meeting, who strikes the fatal blow on Horth's neck. Mm -hmm. And everyone else is only too happy to credit him with the killing. Right. Even give him the arm ring to mark him out as Horth's killer. It's a bullseye (laughs) for Thorbjorg. And, of course, they don't tell him about what Thorbjorg said at the meeting until after they've named him Horth's slayer. Right, of course. So that's going to be one storyline we'll have to follow through on. And we're getting a pretty clear sense here that Thorbjorg considers herself to have a right to seek vengeance if her big brother is killed. Mm -hmm. And specifically, no one is willing to argue that point. And no one particularly wants to test her resolve. That includes Thorsten, by the way. When he learns about Thorbjorg's oath of vengeance, he says that he wishes he'd never struck the blow. (laughs) No kidding. And meanwhile, we've also got Helga out on the island. Mm -hmm. She's figured out exactly what the crowd on the beach is up to. And she's not interested in waiting around to be attacked. So she decides instead to swim to the mainland. Now, that'd be an impressive swim. Yeah, and she does it with her four-year-old son, Bjorn, in her arms. That is even more impressive. And then she swims back to meet her older son, Grimkel, and carries him to land as well. 
And that's almost ridiculous. It's greater levels of strength here yep. and endurance. Um, all of this is happening at night and in silence, by the way. I mean, wow. I mean, mm-hmm. this is a remarkable feat, and it's one of the most famous passages in the saga. It's the most famous, I, I would say, at least. Our old mm-hmm. friend Jonas Christensen says that what we remember best from this saga is probably the tale of how Helga, Hord's widow, swims to the mainland with her two small sons. That's fair. Uh, Anthony Falks, with a bit of understatement, calls it a heroic escape and one of the most memorable episodes in the saga. But honestly, I'd be hard-pressed to name another moment in here that's as widely cited as this one. Yeah. Uh, Emily Lethbridge talks about this episode as an example of how sagas fit into the landscape of Iceland. And that the landscape helps to make the stories human and alive and adds to their appeal. Absolutely. Yeah. And that fits with the saga author's report that local people were impressed when they found out about it. So much so that they named the bay after her, Helgasund. So, okay, so Helga's made it back to the mainland. Yeah, but now she's got nowhere to go and all the prominent men of the district are part of the agreement not to help or shelter her or her sons. Was that on purpose? What, the men part? Yeah. Well, yeah, yes. Excellent. Uh, Yes, Helga knows her best bet is to bypass the men entirely. Fortunately, there's another option for her. She and her sons make their way to Indridi's farm at Indridistather. She then hides near an outbuilding with her younger son and sends her older son, Grimkel, to ask Thorbjorg, her sister-in-law, for Mm -hmm. help. This is trouble. yeah, and I think we can let the saga tell this part. So these these two women now are going to come together. It's great. Thorbjorg was sitting on the crossbench when her nephew came in and asked her for protection. She stood up and reached out to him and asked for the news and where Helga was. Grimkel told her as much as he knew and led her to Helga. Thorbjorg could not speak because she was so moved. Then she showed them to an outbuilding and locked them in. So... This is actually the moment when Thorbjorg learns that her brother's been killed. Yeah. And she's not just moved because of Helga's plight. She's in mourning for her brother Horth as well. Exactly right. Um, And when her husband, Indridi, and his friends return home later that day, Thorbjorg doesn't act as if she knows anything. She definitely doesn't mention Helga and the boys hidden in the storage building. (laughs) And when Indridi tells her what happened... She waits until they go to bed that night to respond. Respond is hardly the word for it. Because she whips out a long knife and tries to kill him. That is a response. You must have an interesting home life, John. (laughs) She she does, though, nearly kill her husband. Mm -hmm. Indriti is able to block the attack but suffers a serious hand injury. Um, and this is another echo of uh, what we saw at the end of Gisli's saga. Yes, uh, absolutely. When, uh, when Thordis attacks her husband, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, she doesn't attack her husband. She attacks... Oh, she attacks uh, Aeolf the Grey. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, Indri's reaction is essentially a recognition that Thorbjorg's... She's actually within her rights to look for revenge. Yeah. He says, Now, Thorbjorg, we have to find a way out of a hard situation. And you want to take a big part. But tell me, what would it take to make peace between us? That's a, those are serious, like, back-down words from yeah. a man who's currently wrapping up his hand. Yeah, yes. No, uh, no. There, there's nothing but for you to bring me the head of Thorstein Goldbutton. And uh, Indridi agrees to do it. Yeah. So the next morning, he rides out alone to Thorstein's farm. 
I mean, there's a lot going on here. Uh, aside from the bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia thing, which it feels like a riff on John the Baptist, but it probably isn't. I don't think so. No. Yeah. No. What's interesting here is that everyone, including Thorbjörg herself, assumes that she has a right, maybe even a duty to seek revenge. Yeah. Now, some of that goes back to the fact that she walked into that meeting and told the assembled men of the district that she'd kill whichever one of them struck a blow on her brother. Mm Mm-hmm. But some of it is just that she acts as if revenge is her right and no one contradicts her. And she has a certain amount of leverage in dealing with her husband. Mm-hmm. Through Thorbjörg, Indrithi is guilty of conspiring in a killing within his extended family unit. Right. Even though Horth was an outlaw and a difficult figure, Indrithi is not likely to gain a great deal of honor from killing his own brother-in-law. Especially if his wife stands on her right to speak and act out against it. So we have this sure. this play of brothers-in-law and duties to brother-in-law similar to what we saw in Gisli Saga. Right, those peace-weaving marriages that theoretically should stop conflict, but in this case, in some ways start conflict. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, but then there's still a great deal of uh, freight culturally in making a killing within your married family. Absolutely. Uh, that's a very dangerous thing to be doing, and Indridi realizes that he's in trouble here. And you get a clear sense of that from how quickly he agrees to her ultimatum. I mean, it's not shocking that he has no particular loyalty to Thorsten, uh, Thorsten Goldbutton. As we said, Thorsten wasn't part of the original conspiracy, and he's been in league with the outlaws for quite some time. Right. Not exactly a model citizen. But on the other hand, Indridi just made a pact with everyone else at the shore, and that did include Thorsten. Right. Uh, I mean, he did, but that wasn't about not ever attacking each other. That was only that none of them would offer aid to Helga and her sons. Yes. Well, that's another angle here. Remember Mm -hmm. that in all this, Indrithi still doesn't really know Hor's family is hiding in his shed. It's true. Uh, And that's an interesting angle, the hiding in the shed part. I want to get back to that. Uh, But first, we've got Indrithi riding out to Thorsten Goldbutton. He makes his way all the way to Thorsten's farm and hides near a path by the temple on Thorsten's property. Interesting that there's hiding going on. And mm-hmm. at this point, the narrative shifts over to Thorsten, who's at the temple praying to his household gods that morning. And he hears... It's household gods again. Household gods again. Yeah, this author's got a real curiosity about those, or at least an imagining of what pagan life might have been like. Right, um, I right. Think that, to me, that sounds more, more what's going on. But Thorstein's praying, and he hears a verse being spoken. Right. We should say he's alone in the temple. Exactly. Uh, the voice reciting the verse is coming from the altar stone. Oh, all right then. Your fated feet have come this way, have trod the earth a final day. In thee must before daylight repay your crime with equal right. I mean, it's not exactly the Volusba, is it? Well, it, I mean, it is a rock speaking and you know, uh, clumsy yeah, allowances. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> it is suspiciously rhyming in English, though. It, it really is. <laughs> uh, so Thorsten's just been told that he's supposed to die on this day. By a rock, yes. And yeah, that yeah. Indrithi is going to be the one to do it. So, understandably, he's a little unnerved when he starts on his walk back to his farm and he sees Indrithi standing there blocking the path. Hey, gold button. There's no need to run so fast. And there's not much of a fight that follows. Yeah. Indrithi strikes at Thorstein with salty sword and chops his head off with a single stroke. So there's yeah. one for the body count. 
it's not a surprise. I mean, Thorsten was the one to kill Horth, but he's not a fighter by nature. No. He's a sneak. Right? He's a sneak who played both sides and ended up in the middle of a feud. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's one of the Narfies of the world, I guess you could Narfie. say. I don't think he's quite that bad. But uh, speaking of Narfi, John, did you know that my uh, sister-in-law got a cat and named it Narfi? Really? Yes, her cat's that name fits. is Narfi. That's a. <laughs> and uh, I would say that Narfi is more cat than dog. Yes, Narfi's definitely more cat than dog. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so Indri collects the head and brings it and Solti's arm ring back to Thorbjorg, only stopping at a farm along the way to announce himself as Thorstein's slayer, keeping it legal. Right, absolutely. But uh, Thorbjorg isn't letting him off the hook so easily. First of all, she tosses the head aside. I don't much care for it when it's off the body. What a great line. But uh, <laughs> I feel that way about chicken meat. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Indrithi says, now you'll be reconciled with me? Ah, uh, no. Oops. <laughs> not, un- <laughs> not unless you agree to welcome <laughs> and shelter Helga and her sons if they should ever arrive here and give them all the assistance they might need. It seems to me that they probably jumped into the sea and drowned themselves to avoid being found on the island, so... Sure, I'll promise you this, since I'll never have to make good on it, tee-hee. Huh. Well, just a moment. I have to go out to the shed. (laughs) (laughs) And she goes out and gets Helga and the boys. Well, I've clearly said more than I should, but uh, (laughs) it's best to keep one's word. Yeah, it's an interesting way of putting it. Uh, Indridi is in a position where he can't keep his word. At least he can't keep all his words, exactly. right? Uh, he's joined in a promise with the other men of the district to offer no assistance or protection to Helga or her sons. And now he's promised the opposite to his wife. Yes. And now there might be an automatic tendency here to think of these as separate worlds. That Indridi's word with his men and his word with his wife are two different things, but... Mm-hmm. I think anyone who's ever tried that quickly realizes that's not the case. <laughs> no. Honor is contiguous right, in all parts of a person's life. Yes. And there are two people's honor to consider here. Thorbjorg also made an earlier oath to be the death of the man who killed Horth, and she's fulfilled her oath. Her honor demanded revenge, and she's got it. Indridi is widely understood to have behaved as his honor demanded. Because we're told that no one ever brings charges against Indridi for Thorsten's death or for violating his oath. Which suggests that people may recognize that a man's promise to his wife is of higher precedence than a promise to other men. Mm. Or at least that they have to be weighed equally. Although, I'd like to add one more possibility that maybe Thorstein doesn't have any extended family and no one really cares about his death. Or at a class level is just not considered to be as important as Thorbjörg, right? And so an oath to Thorbjörg, regardless of sex or marital status, is more important than an oath to Thorstein because she's of a higher class. Yeah, yeah. There's another possibility as well. Public opinion might be that the oath the men swore on the shore was too harsh and even dishonorable. I mean, they did swear, in effect, to kill a woman with two young children. Not exactly a shining moment for any of them. They don't want to run around bragging about that. Right. And that oath treated Helga and her sons as combatants in a feud between Horth and the mainland men. But the wider public includes women, as well as men who aren't high on adrenaline. And in the cold light of day, that oath looks like a pretty shoddy oath. Yeah. Whereas his oath to his wife to avenge his brother-in-law and protect the widow and kids... Well, that's an oath that looks high-minded and worthy of a powerful man. 
Yeah. Uh, but of course, meanwhile, there's also Thorbjörg's honor to consider. And the opinion of the district is explicitly given. Everyone considered Thorbjörg to have behaved magnanimously. She's also behaving with the self-interested, self-restraint worthy of an important figure of the community. Mm-hmm. And her honor is also magnified as a result. Well, let's just say she's behaved with restraint so far. Yeah, so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thorbjörg's decided to let go of her grievances with her husband. That doesn't mean she's done avenging her brother. Part 13. Kaleidoscopic Combinations. Now, at this point... Oh, okay. To- Wait a second here, Johnny. I feel like uh, that title needs some explanation. You want to elaborate mm-hmm. a little? Oh, it's uh, it's it's part of a quote from Mark Twain from the from the Gilded Age. I, on, I got the whole thing here somewhere. Uh, no, that's not really what I meant. No, no, no. no. Here, here, I got it. I got it. Of course, uh, you just it, happen to have Mark Twain's Gilded Age just sitting there well, right next to you while we were recording. I, or maybe it's, you planned this. It's part this. of my office bookshelves. <laughs> Is it now? Have you read The Gilded Age? It's awesome. No, I haven't. Uh, I like to have it nearby. Uh, <laughs> history never repeats itself, but the kaleidoscopic combinations of the pictured present often seem to be constructed from the broken fragments of antique legends. Hmm. That's lovely. Um, but I'm really, I'm, I'm asking why Kaleidoscopic Combinations is the title of this section of mm-hmm. Horde Saga. I mean, well, I think I already know the answer at this point, but I'd like to hear you say it. Well, broken fragments from the last section came mm-hmm. from this same quote, right? I, w- I was getting at something that I think defines this saga in a lot of ways. It's really offering a meditation on the fragility of peace and the cost of violence. The long-term echoes of the death of the home dwellers and Horde in particular, will still be felt in the region years later. The actors of this saga, especially the women who uphold Horde's memory and seek revenge for him, keep reasserting their need for and their right to revenge. And there's no real way for anyone to stop it, but there's also no sign that it will ever really be enough. Hmm. Uh, we should return to this after we finish telling the story, maybe maybe revisit in the judgment section. Hmm. Uh, all right, well, so tell. Okay, I will. So Thorbjorg hires a working man named Thorolf the Stiff, who's known for his joking manner. Um, he's a real charmer. He's mm-hmm. also got a skill at imitating other people's voices, and he's also really clever with his hands. Oh, good. Good with shadow puppets, one might say. Uh-huh. So he spends the autumn with them, and, and while he's there, he becomes friendly with both Thorbjorg and Helga. Now... He's clever with his hands, and he's friendly with both Thorbjörg and Helga. Is that innuendo? Because it's starting to sound like innuendo. It might be half innuendo. Uh I mean, it's a little suspicious in the way it's written in the saga, but it's widely believed around the area that he spent the autumn having an affair with Helga, the Earl's daughter, Mm. and she doesn't exactly try to deny the rumors. I mean, they're both consenting adults, so presumably that's fine. I mean, Horth hasn't been dead that long, but hey. Oh, well, there's nothing wrong with it per se, I guess. But Thorbjorg then offers to keep Thorolf at the farm for the winter and give him Solti's arm ring and sword and maybe even arrange a marriage with Helga. See, this seems like it comes with a fairly obvious catch. I I mean, I don't know if you'd call it a catch. I mean, she does want him to kill a man. See, now that's that if that's not a catch, <laughs> it's a, it's at least a significant price. It's a little quid pro quo. Yeah. Uh, who she got in mind? A man named Ref Kotlison. 
Oh, yeah, Ref. Of course you want revenge on Ref. Why does she want revenge on Ref? <laughs> well, he was one of the ringleaders of the attack on the home dwellers, and uh-huh. he was the one who chased Horth on horseback and kept him from escaping. I mean, it kind of sounded like supernatural fatigue kept Horth from escaping, but okay. Well, anyway, it doesn't really matter because Thorolf agrees. Mm-hmm. And Thorbjorg manages to get Solti's sword from Indridi by cutting its sheath so that he can't carry it around. Mm-hmm. So he needs it to be repaired, and so it's available. Mm-hmm. And then, while Indridi is away on business, she sends Thorolf out to kill Ref. And Thorolf sneaks into Ref's household at night, but he discovers that Ref sleeps in a locked bed closet, and so it's hard to get in. Right, and... This is when we see why Thorolf's skill set is important. A servant woman is woken in the night by a man who sounds like Ref's shepherd. And remember, Thorolf is good at imitating voices. Yes, he is. Uh, and he sends her to ask Ref for some skin for a new pair of shoes. It's a nonsense request in the middle of the night, but Ref grumpily tells her to fetch some shark skin from a shed, which she does. Shark skin shoes, very sexy. It's it's quite uh, it's quite snazzy. <laughs> but the door doesn't close all the way behind her because Thorolf has propped it with a piece of wood. Mm, crafty. He's crafty with his hands. But once he's inside the bedchamber and standing over Ref, well, Thorolf's nerves suddenly give out. Mm. With Ref asleep, he simply can't bring himself to strike a killing blow. Right, and meanwhile, Thorbjörg Katla, who's Ref's mother, is awake and sees what's happening through the door. Wake up, my son! The devil stands above you and will kill you! A lot of things happen very quickly at this point. Ref leaps up and tries to get out of bed. Thorolf smashes the sword down onto Ref, and Thorbjörg mm. Katla, at the same time, rushes through the door to save her son. Right, and all that really does play out at once. Uh, Thorolf's sword blow lands on Ref's legs, and they're badly injured, but not severed completely because of the bedclothes uh, sort of muffling the blow. Ref falls awkwardly to the floor, and Thorbjorg tackles Thorolf to the ground and bites him on the neck. Best bloodshed. <laughs> there, there's a brief struggle, but Katla's got her teeth into Thorolf, something fierce, mm. and she crushes his windpipe in her teeth, killing him. Yikes. Take that, Ale Scott the Grimson. <laughs> Ref survives, but his injuries are serious, and he's never able to walk again. Yeah, he's actually carried in a chair for the rest of his life, and he lives a long time. I and mean, he, he does eventually become called Ref the Old, and he becomes a well-respected chieftain. Yeah, and that idea of him being carried in the chair calls to mind the images from the Viking series of Ivar yep. the Boneless being carried yes, around. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Oh, and he's got Soti's sword and the arm ring, which is kind of a well, interesting... for a while he has them. Well, not for long. <laughs> when Indrili finds out about the attack and how it came about, he rides to Ref's farm. He apologizes on his wife's behalf, and Ref just gives him the sword back. Yeah, that I mean that's great, but let's not skip over Thorbjorn Katla. She bit the throat out of an armed man. Yeah. Remember when we said that Ale biting Otley the Short's throat out was pretty damn impressive. It was, and we awarded it best bloodshed. Uh, and and the bull killing that followed the duel. That was also pretty impressive. Right. I mean, Kala's act here is, I would say, also pretty impressive. It is. 
let's keep in mind that she's not a young woman, right? This is an elderly woman. Mm-hmm. She's running around flying, tackling men to the ground and crushing their windpipes with her teeth. Well, it's part of the saga's move to the women of the region taking charge of this feud. Yeah. And that gets followed up almost immediately when Katla and Thorgrim McCraft's woman are both found horribly murdered. Oh, yeah. Hang, hang on, though. So to understand what's happening here, you have to know that Thorgrim McCraft's woman is the mother of Indridi. We right. talked about that earlier. Mm-hmm. And like Katla, she's associated with vaguely magical abilities. I mean, what the, woman isn't? Well, the especially older women in the sagas, right? not infrequently. Uh, and the saga describes the scene. The two women were found dead in Mulafell. They were all torn and cut apart into pieces. The area around the mound where they were buried has been considered haunted ever since. So with two enemy sorcerers buried in a mound together. Yeah. I'm not I'm not surprised it's haunted. <laughs> Hang on. Uh, people say that Thorgrima, Indridi's mother, wanted to get Soti's arm ring back for her son, but that Katla safeguarded it and refused to give it up. And so the two women killed one another. And the ring... Well, the ring has never been seen since. It's mm, a good way to get rid of the ring. Yeah. So that's the end of the story of Soti's arm ring. From Soti to Horth to Thorsten Goldbutton to Indridi to Thorbjorg to Thorolf to Ref to Katla and back into the earth. At least until someone dares to try raiding the mound of Thorbjorg Katla and Thorgrim a craftswoman. <laughs> good luck with that. I'm sure it's already been done. So both Ref and Indrili have now lost their mothers in the fallout from Horth's slaying. Right, and the killings continue. Four years later, a ship comes into the area, and on board is a young man named Thord Colgrimson. More grist for the mill. Yeah. Thord is the son of Colgrim, as his name would indicate. Uh, he was one of the conspirators who took part in that massacre of outlaws. Uh, yes, and Helga, who's still living with Indridi and Thorbjörg, is paying attention to these things. She learns of this and tells her 12-year-old son, Grimkel, Your father's death seems slow in coming to your mind. Thord Kolgrimson would be a worthy target for you, since his father was one of the chief opponents of your father. And so Grimkel takes two men and heads off to intercept Thord. But the next day, all four of them are found dead. Thord, Grimkel, and the two farmhands. And all their weapons are gone. And officially, no one knows what happened to them. Officially, no one knows. But unofficially, there was a man called Scaife who hasn't been mentioned in the saga. Mm. He's a poor man who lives near where the bodies are found. And shortly after the deaths, Scaife disappears. He moves to Norway and he becomes a wealthy man there. And the rumors around the community are that Scaife found the men wounded from the fight, finished killing them, and robbed them of their weapons and goods and set off. Wow. Yeah. No, I, here we are, what, I mean, 26 books into our troll through the Icelandic sagas, and they're still throwing curveballs. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is my second time reading this saga, and I totally forgot about the rando who mass executes a bunch of injured men and robs their corpses. Yeah, it gets pretty depressing at the end here as everything kind of just devolves into chaos. Yep. And there are no consequences ever mentioned for this, except that Indri realizes that he can't keep Helga and Bjorn around any longer. Mm-hmm. So he arranges passage for them to Gotland, and Helga moves into the household of her brother, Hror. And later, after Bjorn grows up, he and his uncle, Hror, return to Iceland, and 
They hunt down more men in revenge for Horth's death. Uh-huh. But honestly, even the saga seems exhausted by this point. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the narrative voice just sort of shrugs and says, 24 men were eventually killed to avenge Horth, and compensation was paid for none of them. And almost all of them were killed with the advice of Thorbjord Grimkel's daughter, who was considered to have been a great and noble woman. And there's that emphasis again on Thorbjörg's ownership of the feud to avenge her brother. Yeah. I really don't know if we're going to see another story this interested in women's roles in vengeance until we get to Laxdala Saga. Yeah, probably not. All right. So let's, uh, let's circle back for a second to what we were saying at the start of this section. That this saga is ending with a point to make about the cost of never-ending feud, which is, a, I think, a common theme in, yeah. in sagas. I mean, never-ending is a bit strong, but certainly the idea is that revenge doesn't ever really obviate the need for more revenge. Yeah, these last few chapters have made that point by following several threads of revenge attempts by Thorbjorg, by Helga, by Thorbjorg Katla, by Helga's son Grimkel, and finally by baby Bjorn and old man Roar, and Indri and others. The final count is that 24 men are killed to avenge Hor's death. That's a good amount. And no compensation is paid for any of them, which suggests that we're seeing the potential for a couple dozen new feud cycles. I think so, absolutely. And, and if we take that to heart, then this saga is turning out to have something different to say than the other outlaw sagas. Those both also ended with revenge cycles that continued after the death of the outlaw hero, but I think they were less cynical about the curative power of feud killing. Yeah, so I mean, if we compare this to Gisli Sorsen's saga... We have Thorthus's attempted revenge on Gisli's killer, and later there's Ari the Red's revenge on Berg Vestinson for the death oh, of yes. Thorkel Sursen. Mm-hmm. But those are more or less presented as concluding points of the story. Right. Even though in Erbridge's saga we see that story carry on. True. Uh, meanwhile, Gretter's brother Thorsten Dromund uh, chased Gretter's slayer across Europe and finally killed him in Byzantium. But then his story continued into a conversion thouter and a more or less peaceful retirement. Right. And we could nitpick either of those, but both of them definitely more of a conclusion than this saga's Mm -hmm. version of, uh, and the killings continued for a full generation and two dozen more men died. Yeah. And this is, I would call this a different level of cynicism about the consequences of feud. Gisli and Greta's stories do end with a crescendo of violence, but then move into a denouement providing some kind of capstone to the story. This one ends with more killing. And more. And finally, we're at the point where old women are tearing each other to pieces over a gold arm ring, and an otherwise irrelevant thief stabs a boy to death and steals his stuff. And I think that's only heightened by the way our author characterizes Horth as a man who actually deserved outlawry. Mm-hmm. Gisli and Greta were at least partly framed. Horth is actually a criminal, and for that matter, a leader of criminals. And yet the vengeance for his death goes on for decades and never has a a clear conclusion. But speaking of conclusions, John, I think we can, at this point, draw a curtain on Horth's saga for now. No, no, we're just getting started. Well, I mean, we got to leave something for the judgment episode. We got to judge this saga. Uh, Okay, well, let's not shut things down just yet. I think we have time for at least a dip into the listener rune sack. Of course. Uh, who's doing the honors? Well, I've already got the bag here, and I'll just open it up and, oh, look at that. You're on the hot seat. Oh, delightful. 
<laughs> All right, have at you. Yeah, this one's from Deborah Ballister, and it's entirely relevant for what we've been talking about. So it's good we saved this one. Hi, Deborah. So, yeah, Deborah writes Hi, I'm really enjoying the podcast, and I found it as part of the Rex Factor family, and as such, have absolutely no knowledge of the sagas or even medieval literature. Yeah, and I've us just too. <laughs> I've just finished listening to Nyal's saga, and I was wondering whether women had a place in the honor culture. You both mentioned mm. that often a female relative shames a man into acting to avenge the death of a relative, and I was wondering whether this was because they had a stake in the game of honor or whether it was merely to protect the honor of the dead relative. Mm-hmm. Sorry if this question seems a bit silly or if it has been answered elsewhere in the podcast. Many thanks for your time and effort. Really enjoyed listening to you both. And thank you for that. All right. Yeah, thank you, Deborah. Uh, it's a great question. Uh, if you're caught up on the podcast... I hope some of our discussion with Johanna Katrin Friedrich's daughter a couple of episodes ago gave you some context for the roles of women in the sagas. Uh, if you aren't caught up, then you're not listening to this yet. So when you get to this point, I hope you enjoyed that episode. I wonder what year it is and uh, is the plague I, over? <laughs> are we are we all still alive? Yeah. Uh, in the year 2525. <laughs> Uh, now, the upshot is that historically, women were deeply concerned in their family's honor, as any member of the household would be. Right. Now, whenever we answer a question that has both a historical and literary context for an answer, we have to be clear about which one we're dealing with. Yes. Now, I, think, I think the talk with Johanna was mostly about history, but with saga examples thrown in. And in the sagas, there are certain aspects of protecting that honor that are usually depicted as a theater of women's action. Like mm-hmm. the goading of men into action that Deborah mentions, um, that we ju- in fact just saw it with uh, with um, Helga, right? Yes. Goading her son into action, um, yes. and, and, and Thorbjorn sending her husband. Exactly, yeah. And Njalsaga has some great examples of that. Um, it, it's actually impossible to say for certain how closely those stories track to any actual historical reality, but it might well speak to the reality of a belief about women's roles in feud violence. Sure, sure. Yeah, but Nyal's saga offers pretty straightforward depictions of women involving themselves in feud as matrons of their household. Mm -hmm. I think there's a different complexity behind some of the other stories we've seen. Women are in a different position than men when it comes to questions of honor. Uh, It's extremely rare for men in a saga to be truly caught between conflicting demands of family honor because men didn't generally move from one family to another over the course of their lives. Women who married, on the other hand, did. Right? They moved from one family to another. And so a woman might be caught, as Thordis and Gisla's saga was, or as Thorbjörg Grimkel's daughter is in this saga, they might be caught between the honor demands of their relationships to a parent or sibling and the honor demands of their husbands and children. Something that's often presented as the so-called cold council of women is actually most often the product of that narrow line that women have to walk between competing demands on their responsibility to their family's honors. Yeah, the sagas are full of that kind of stuff. And if you're mm-hmm. really interested in it, I highly recommend you read Volsung's Saga or the Saga of the Volsungs, which it spends a lot of time on women's honor and women's conflicting relationships. And yeah. we even see that in this saga. Remember, Thorbjorg yeah. very carefully walks that line in Horth's Saga. Yes. Uh, I stand by our earlier statement that Helga's Swim is the most famous episode of this saga. But this late emphasis on women participating in feud culture should probably be more well-known than it is. 
uh, Ruth Mazokaris does talk about it. Uh, she calls it an example of the pressure that a wife could bring to bear on her husband to place loyalty to her above that to his friends. And uh, yeah, it is that. Yeah, but it's also about how carefully Thorbjorg calibrates her actions. She's fully participating in the culture of feud, and that means calculating not only what she does, but also the social and honor capital she has to spend on doing it. Another quote from Karis here, Thorbjorg uses her loyalty to her brother over her husband only strategically, and so ends up with both vengeance and a long and happy marriage. And we can add that the author of the saga goes out of his way on multiple occasions to track how that successful feud management adds to Thorbjörg's honor. Absolutely. And then there are women like Gudrith Osvistalter uh, in Laxdala saga. Sure, yeah. They're presented as more of a mixed bag, I think. Just, mm-hmm. just as cold-blooded and vengeful as their male counterparts, but also just as spiteful and mercurial as some of the men. Yeah. And if you haven't listened to it yet, our interview with Johanna goes into Guther's story in some detail. And and we're also going to get to that saga someday and go into even more detail. Right. Someday. Uh, and there's one more aspect of this question that we can think about, which is a specific honor culture among women. And my favorite example of that is from Greta's saga. And we've talked about it before. Uh, when Greta is captured by the farmhands of Thorbjörg Stout and her husband, Vermin Slender, She's the first one to come home and find Iceland's most notorious outlaw trussed up in her living room. Mm-hmm. And she responds first by bantering with Gretter and then by ordering her men to release him. Well, she does, but only after extracting a promise from Gretter not to kill any of her men. Right, right. No, I, I well, I mean, that's just common sense, isn't it? Yes. Uh, but the point is that when her husband later asks her why she would do such a thing as release the worst outlaw in Iceland, she gives us one of her reasons that Gretter's kinswoman, Hrefna, would not expect of me that I would allow him to be killed. It's, it's an important hint, I think, that women also have a complicated network of loyalties and honor that dictates how they govern themselves and their households. And that network often runs alongside and supports a broader cultural honor that's usually perceived as residing in the male householder. But sometimes it functions independently, and sometimes it functions counter to the other demands on a woman's honor. But because sagas are almost always preoccupied with the world of men, we have to kind of search around the edges of the narratives for these stories about women's honor. Mm -hmm. It's a fascinating topic, and there's still a lot of work to be done on reasoning out all the implications of the worlds of saga women. Absolutely. Great. Um, all right. Uh, hey, John, real quick before we yeah. uh, wrap this up. Earlier, yeah. you mentioned that you wanted to talk about the shed, um, uh, that shed, shed. scene where Helga and the boys are hiding in the shed. And you said, oh, oh I want to yes. talk about that. Um, you yes. never talked about that. And I have a feeling it connects <laughs> to this conversation about women. So I'm going to push you out. You're, you're in the boat. I'm pushing you out. You can start rowing now. Thanks for that. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, you could talk about this as well as I could. Um, what's happening there, the reason that Thorbjörg is able to hide Helga and her sons so securely in an outbuilding is that what we're talking about here is a storehouse, right? It's not just a shed. It's not like a, a shielding yeah, where yeah. the You're sheep not, are kept. It's not a place where the tools are just kept, right? Exactly, exactly. It's a storehouse. And so they're being kept in a place that is explicitly in the culture, the domain of women. Right. Um, 
as the matron of the house, Thorbjorg controls keys to those buildings, right? Uh, in fact, it's actually a ritual of marriage uh, in this culture that women have a, a ring of keys hung from their belt, which either literally or at least symbolically indicates their dominion over the storehouses of the farm where they're going to live once they're married. Mm-hmm. Thorbjorg is in control of those buildings. It is not only is it not her husband's purview to walk into those buildings and examine them for any sort of random sisters-in-law, but he's also not really able to access those buildings, or at least should not be able to access yeah. those buildings without his wife's permission. Mm-hmm. And so she's able to create a space that exists only really for women uh, by locking her sister-in-law and her and the children into that that storehouse and keeping the keys to herself, which is very much within her right. Yeah. So it's a it's a kind of space within the farm, which again, it's very easy in the sagas to slip into thinking of the uh the men of the farms to as the owners, right? As the sort of commanders of the farm, people who control things. But it's important to understand that many of the buildings and much of the physical space was actually controlled by women. I think so. Absolutely. Great. And I think that with that, we will uh, bring this episode to a conclusion. Uh, we do yep. have one more episode to go where we'll make our judgments about Horth Saga. I think it's got right. a lot of good things going on in it, a lot of things we like. But I think we, there are also some question marks that we need to investigate uh-huh. in a little bit more deeply. Um, that means we also need to hear from you. Yes. Because now it's your time to share with us <laughs> your opinions on what were the best bloodsheds in the saga or do you think we should actually consider Horth for Thingman or maybe for Outlawry? Maybe. Uh, and for that matter, we also want to hear anything you might have to say about this episode or this saga. Uh, what we got right, what we got wrong, what we forgot to talk about entirely. Mm-hmm. So please get in touch with us. Yeah, we'd like to start sharing more of your opinions uh, about the sagas during the actual episode where we go into the judgment so we can respond to them. Uh, while we're going through it. I think that'd be a lot of fun. And so if you want to uh, get in touch with us and share some of your opinions and your thoughts on Horde Saga, you can find us at sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com, on Twitter at sagathingpod, or on Facebook, the evil Facebook, where we are <laughs> sagathingpodcast. Uh, we're also on Instagram at sagathingpodcast, and you can reach us via email at sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. Or what the hell, just inscribe a cursed arm ring and just give it to someone. Anyone will do. It'll make its way to us eventually. Definitely. Yeah, that's the way it would work. Um, And we haven't mentioned this in a while, but Deborah's question reminded me that you should also check out the entire Rex Factor family of podcasts. So we've talked about how our podcast was inspired by Rex Factor. Um, Mm -hmm. You can also check out the other Rex Factor inspired podcasts, uh, Pontifax with Bree and Fry, who are working their way through 2,000 years and almost 250 popes worth of history. Can you believe it? And, of course, then there is Totalis Rankium with Rob and Jamie, uh, a favorite podcast here in the Fringer household. Um, they give all the emperors of Rome the once-over. Right, and they right, they have a second podcast, Totalis Rankium Presidents, which is giving U.S. presidents the twice-over, I guess. Yes. Of course, it's hard to imagine anyone who listens to this silly podcast of ours not having already tried Rex Factor with Graham and Ollie. But you should definitely be listening to that one as well. Absolutely. Um, especially if you're interested in the history of women as they're going through all the uh, consorts. Well, the, the queens and consorts right now. Yeah, That's right. Yeah, it's exciting stuff. 
Um, all right, I think that's going to do it. We will be back soon with our final judgments for Horth and the Home Dwellers in about two weeks. In the meantime, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. Saga thing, we're putting the sagas. <laughs> How could you? I'm going into my radio voice now. It's it's uh it's it's about two a.m. here on Saturday morning. Yeah, oh, I, I don't know why you have to be talking like that one. <laughs> this is a better radio voice if you're trying to get the people. <laughs> the people. I was, I was given I was given a uh, a show on Friday nights and Saturday mornings at a rural station in Vermont. And uh, this is more or less the voice you would use under those circumstances. Yes, John. Uh, I'm going to come in with the weather in a moment here. Now, take it easy. Take it easy. Don't get upset. It's cloudy. You're sounding a little excitable right now. 60% chance of rain. <laughs> um, if you're looking for the mosquitoes out there, well, there there are plenty. <laughs> How, how far are we going to, uh, how long much longer are we going to do this? Because our entire point was to get an early start tonight. And now it appears that instead we're doing our parody of Parks and Rec's parody of NPR. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, I would also point out that it, it is not yet 830. And that is the mm-hmm. time that we were planning to start. That's a good point. Uh, I would like to point out that uh, to bring us full circle on our conversation from before we recorded, the guy who plays the NPR host on Parks and Rec is Dan Castellanato, the voice of Homer Simpson. Ah, uh, that brings us all the way back. It's, <laughs> ha, 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 ha. it's funny how That's... life works like that sometimes. <laughs> all right. Are we done with this nonsense?